Photography has a very intimate, private side that is related to determining everybody's own identity in the connection between your own self and your own photographs and the photographs of your loved ones. Coming up on In Contrast, photographer and human rights advocate Marcelo Brodsky. I'm Milan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Marcelo Brodsky is an Argentine photographer and human rights activist whose work is in the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Tate, and museums throughout Latin America and Europe. During the dirty war of the 1970s, Brodsky's brother was one of thousands of Argentinians killed by the military dictatorship. For many years, he himself lived in exile in Barcelona. In the 1990s, he was a founder of the Parque de la Memoria, a memorial in Buenos Aires dedicated to the victims of state violence. Recently, his work has explored violence in Mexico, South Africa, and the United States. Marcelo Brodsky, it's a real pleasure having you in In Contrast. I want to start by having you reflect on your relationship with your camera. You have been a photographer for decades. You have had your camera as an instrument with you in all sorts of environments. You also use historical photographs. I wonder if you can tell us how that relationship with the physical camera has evolved when you encountered it first, the love-hate connections that you have had with the instrument. Well, in fact, I have been living through a time of total change in the camera in the camera technology and the camera size and what it does and what it delivers and what photography at large means for everyone. But the relationship with a camera is a very personal and intimate thing. We have our own lenses and devices. I've never been a fan or a crazy guy about cameras. I've just used them and had them. I'm not technically speaking, a very, let's say, demanding photographer. I need the camera, the lenses. And when I started, I was very young. I had a camera when I was 12 or 13. Some of the pictures I made with that, I remember it was a Contaflex, a very old camera, but very nice, very historic, very reliable, a reflex camera. I made my first portraits when I was 14, and some of them are still now a part of my work. Then I went into more professional cameras and manual cameras, Nikons, that evolved with technology into the digital era. And I've been updating that constantly, and now I'm using a digital camera, a large camera, but I'm also carrying a very small one. I'm not willing to carry the heavy stuff anymore with me unless I have to go to do some special shooting. For instance, I've just made a book on the Colón Theater, which is our main opera theater in Buenos Aires. And in order to make these pictures, I was carrying all my gear all the time. But when I come here, like traveling, I take a small camera with me, a small Canon, which is easy, and my mobile phone, which I use for my everyday things. So technology changes, and photography has always been very related with technology. Photography evolves with technology. And that's why and how it has become now so immensely popular and visual language is erupting in language at large as a, a very incredible space. 
far beyond the camera. Now it's a telephone or whatever, but the camera is in the source, in the basis of our knowledge and of our vision, so I still love the cameras. And I would prefer to take, when I go to take a portrait or a special photograph or I want to do something for a book, I take my camera. Although now I'm working a lot also with photography that has not been taken by me, but by other photographers to narrate history Mm -hmm. and to tell stories. But that's a different issue. It's not the camera anymore. It's the image itself. You were mentioning at the beginning that we are in the process of a radical transformation of how photography is understood in society, how it is taken, who is the photographer, how that photograph reaches an audience. This must be putting an enormous pressure on professional photographers who for quite some time, when the camera wasn't part of an iPhone, had, so to speak, a monopoly or the professional approach on what the right photograph was. And now, since everybody can do it, it democratizes. It also steals away from those that have been spending many years sharpening their eye, focusing it in particular ways. Well, visual representation of society, in a way, goes back from the camera, and it starts with a painting in the cave and goes towards painting and through painting and portraiture and Baroque and Renaissance and comes to the camera that was 160, 170 years ago invented, but as a consequence of the development of representation, not only of the development of technology. And it gave painting the freedom to get away from portraiture and representing weddings and people and go into more abstract ways of representation. And photography took the responsibility of the portraiture from the daguerreotypes on. Now, visual representation has become widely spread. Everybody wants to represent himself, his own. And in a way, everybody's a photographer. And on one hand, yes, that has stolen part of the responsibility of shooting the portrait or whatever, but it has added an enormous responsibility on us as visual cultivated people and visual people that have been seeing and looking with photographs for tens of years or all of our lives. And then what initially was the responsibility of shooting is now the responsibility of using photography to tell the story in a different way and teaching visual culture to the new generations. And so far they are using photography all the time, even though everyone is a photographer, the way in which you use photography is still to be developed because since photography has become accessible to everyone and it's a tool that everyone can use to tell his story, how do we tell stories with photography? How do we tell this story? And that's a big challenge for photography people, for visual people like myself that have been looking at images all the time. And language of images is changing and the language of images is spreading, it's growing and it's becoming widespread and everybody is using photography to communicate. So how can we do for this language to be sophisticated enough for the history not to be reduced to its minimum, to one shot or one idea? I mean, photography has to become as complicated, complex and sophisticated as language in general is. And that's a very heavy burden and a heavy responsibility on us. I want to ask you the connection between the camera and politics in you. You seem to have had, almost from the beginning or from the part of your work that I know, 
a very clear political conscience and a political mission and vision in the use of the camera. Where does that come from? And might one say that it is the result of the juncture of having been born in Argentina, in Argentina, in the period of the Cold War, and being a member of a family who suffered directly from the dictatorship. One of your brothers was one of the desaparecidos, one of the disappeared. The connection between politics and the camera, or the camera and politics. Well, I would rather transform this question into the connection between politics and image at large, because the camera is just an instrument. You can take photographs without a camera, which is the rayograms or the beginning of photography. You could impress paper or you can do a camera obscura without a camera. You can take pictures with a camera and you can use pictures of others that are taken by somebody else. The mission, the main goal is to tell the story, whatever story you want to tell. The narration is the center, how to transmit knowledge how to transmit information, how to transmit experience through visual means. And that goes beyond the camera. The camera is a tool to make that happen. And when you want to tell the story, a reportage, I've been the member of the jury of the World Press Photo last year, so we reviewed thousands of images, all of them taken by cameras, because, of course, that's one of the requisites of the competition of the World Press Photo Foundation. And the most important thing when you evaluate photography is the story, what you are talking about, how you are talking about it. In contemporary art, which is my current practice, the limit, the border between the disciplines and the media is not so straightforward and clear anymore. You can use photography, music, text, poetry, dance, whatever you want to use in order to convey a certain idea, to tell a story, to tell your own opinion or your vision about it. This has been happening around all of the 20th century, that performance art and new ways of working with art have exploded. And now contemporary art is an open field where every discipline coexists and every means that you can use to tell the story, to make the statement, is valid. And that point, and coming from that premise, I've used a lot of archival photography in my work. This is also very extended recently, the use of archival photography as a tool to create art. That has been happening a lot. I don't know how that will evolve when all the archival material is just a digital, let's say, information, and that it's more difficult to access. But... We are now referring to archives of the analog times. The pictures were printed, there are printed matters, there are paper, they handle well the pass of time in general, particularly the black and white prints. Maybe slides or color lose their color a bit more. But this information contained in millions and millions of analog photographs in archives all over are a great tool to tell and narrate history. Because for the new generations, if there are no images involved, they won't pay any attention to history because the image is what calls their attention and not the written word. In general, I'm not speaking about the elite, the college elite that studies history, but at large, the new generations. My first most known work, a good memory that is referred to the missing people in my school, the people that were kidnapped and killed by the dictatorship, of Argentina that was between 1976 and 1983, 
and killed 30,000 people. They were all represented by photographs. When you see the marches of the victims in the streets of their families, they are carrying photographs of them. So my first work that had a lot of international, let's say, follow-up and consequences was based on a picture of my class as a high school student in which I am portrayed. It's a picture taken by the school photographer that was a professional taking this famous class picture that everybody has. And I took this class picture, which is a black and white small picture, blown it up for a large format to use it initially as a backdrop for some portraits. And later, when we decided to count how many victims of the dictatorship we had in our school, I made some writing on it, some writing that was telling the story of our generation, marked the two missing classmates of my class, Claudio and Martin, and made around it a whole story, a narration of what happened to our generation. That's an intervention of that picture. That picture at that time was only meant to be in the school, hanging to tell the students what had happened in the same place with the previous generation, and now it's hanging or it's part of the collections of the Tate and of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York or the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. It has become an art piece, which is a reference to talk about disappearances and the effects of state terror through a poetic approach to that image. It's just the image is part of a poetic way of trying to narrate and transmit emotions to a new generation. This technique of you working with, let's say, file photography, I left it for some time. I did some visual correspondences, which are dialogues with other photographers, purely based in images that we talk with each other. We have a conversation with each other with images and how and what that means as part of a language, how far we can go with a purely visual conversation. And then later, in a few years ago, I started again writing on images, either my images or images from others that I licensed from the photographer or from the agency or from the hairs or from institutions that I use and I choose the best images I want to use for a certain story in this late work that I'm showing now. It's a narration about what happened in the 60s, particularly in 1968 around the world with images from Europe, from Asia, from Latin America, from the States. In particular, from the States, I have an image of the Poor People March in Washington that was called by Martin Luther King just a few months before he was shot down in Memphis. And there's another picture that I wrote about narrating the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, where also there was a big movement of students against the war in Vietnam. These two images are part of the narration. And when you talk about a story, is the story that you're telling first come into your mind and then you find the archival image that you want to tell or you find the archival image and then you feel that you have a particular approach to it? I wonder what the relationship is between origin and final product. Well, that's a good question. Let me answer that question with the 1968 project, because each project has its own inception and its own origin, and each one is totally different, as each relationship with another person is different, or each book you read is different. So in the case of the 68 work, this started in 14. I was very much affected by the kidnapping of 43 students in Mexico, in Ayotzinapa, in Guerrero, where they were going on a movement towards the Zócalo Square in Mexico City to remember October the 2nd, which was the big march in the city of Mexico in 1968. 
in Tlatelolco, where 200 and more students were shot dead by the soldiers and the police, and it's never been exactly investigated, and we never knew how many exactly they were. And it's a big hole in Mexican justice and history. What happened with this massacre of students in the square of the three cultures, La Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Mexico City, in the Tlatelolco place, which used to be a market in ancient indigenous times? So I was very affected by this Ayotzinapa kidnapping, and I grasped an image from a Mexican scholar that is specialized in images of Tlatelolco, of that massacre, asked him for an image of the time, and wrote on that image, if Tlatelolco would have been judged, Ayotzinapa wouldn't have happened. This was my statement written on that image, and Tlatelolco was in 1968. So I went to 1968 to research for images of Mexico about this massacre. And I made this initial piece of the series. And then I stayed in 1968 mm -hmm. and started looking around and starting looking for connections between that student movement that was a worldwide global movement, anticipatory of globalization in times where there was no internet, no faxes, no ways of easily communicating with each other still. There was a lot of spirit of the times, zeitgeist, as we say in German as a classic word of what was happening at the time, and the 68 movement spread from France, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, the U.S., Paris, London, Prague, everywhere. So I am now looking for all these images from all these places and putting them together, writing on them, drawing on them, painting them from the original black and white images I rent, I license, And that makes a full narration of the time that no photographer on his own was ever able to shoot. How uh, old were you in 1968? And was, how politically yes. conscious were you there at that time? Has 1968, this crucial, decisive year, as you say, in the journey to globalization and in the marches and political movements that defined Latin America and other parts of the world, looms more in your mind today than it did at that time? Well, you know, I am Argentinian. I was living, I was 13. And this class picture I mentioned about of my school was taken in 1967. That is when I started school, in this very politicized school, Nacional Buenos Aires, that has a tradition from the time of independence. Most of the leaders of the independence against Spain, which was a war in Argentina, studied in the school. Belgrano, Moreno, all these names of famous national heroes. So it has a lot of political background. So that picture was taken in 67. In 67, October the 8th, the Che was killed in Bolivia. Che Guevara. Che Guevara. The killing of Che Guevara in Bolivia in October 67 affected Latin America very much. This happened maybe eight years after the Cuban Revolution, which had already had a lot of influence in the region. It was somehow a revolutionary time, a time of change. And I was a teenager, I was 13, and coming to that very militant school, an active school. So yeah, all these things that were happening around, the killing of the Che, the uprising of the students in Paris with all these poetical ideas, imagination to power, 
enjoy without conflict and all these ideas of 68 in France affected everyone and in particular me a lot. I wanted to be there. In fact, my father was there, but I was very young to travel. But yes, I had an important effect of these events in my life and particularly later in May 69, we had the Cordobazo, which was the biggest uprising we ever had, popular uprising in Argentina, in Cordoba on the May 29th. In fact, May 29th, 19, will be the 50th anniversary of this uprising. So that also affected us very much. How did the involvement of your brother, your younger brother, in ultimate disappearance of your brother define you as a young man and also as an artist? I know that your mother was very active in denouncing the disappearance and in fighting the Argentine judicial system so that there would be accountability for those that had perpetuated those atrocities when democracy finally came back. Tell me about your brother. Tell me about that impact in your life. Well, my brother Fernando was two years younger than me. He was kidnapped on August 14th, 1979, from the house he was living in. He was taken to the ESMA, which is the concentration camp, the biggest concentration camp of the Navy of Argentina, where 5,000 people were tortured to death and thrown from airplanes to the River de la Plata, which is beside the city. My brother was one of them. So, in fact, my book, Good Memory, the first book that made me known as an artist and initiate, let's say, an international art, career, and work. This finishes with a chapter dedicated to my brother. This chapter includes images of him in different circumstances. It's like an impossible portrait of a missing person. It has some black and white pictures that I took when I was 14 that I mentioned before that are part of the piece that are now like art pieces. And I didn't write on them, but I wrote beside them a caption about them in which the text and the image work together to convey meaning. Text and image, in this case, at that point were separate, but they were working together. So my first writings on photographs were on one hand the writing on the class picture, on the other hand the captions of my brother's pictures. I also researched a lot about him. This book finishes with some images of the Rio de la Plata, the river where they were thrown, and it was a very strong image at that time and led to the construction of the memorial park where we have the names of all the victims, my brother among them. And you were instrumental in creating this memorial. Yes, I was part of the founding group because it came from our school. The same group of students that had organized the event in which we remembered the victims of our school and counted how many there were 20 years after the coup. This was in 96. The same group built a monument in the school with all the names, a bronze sculpture from an Argentinian artist, Pablo Reynoso, that is hanging in the school. And then we came up with an idea of building this park. And I suggested this idea of it being beside the river, and we brought the idea of sculptures. And when we suggested this to the human rights organizations, they incorporated the list of names. And that's how this became the memorial, where we have received Angela Merkel, Barack Obama, Macron, United Nations Secretary Generals, both of them. I mean, it has become a symbolic, a memorial place where to honor the victims of the dictatorship. In that park, El Parque de la Memoria, the Park of Memory, it's very much in the spirit of Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, the list 
of those that disappeared, including your brother. It strikes me that both in your photography and in the interventions that you make of archival material, as well as in the effort and collaboration you have had in creating monuments or memorials or sites where the past can be brought back or at least not disappear altogether, that the act of remembering is very much an essential ingredient in your effort as an artist. Well, yes, it is. On one hand, photography and memory are totally interlinked. We all know from our youth and from our parents, from our photographs. And therefore, when we need to refresh a memory, it's very likely that we will look for a photograph. This relationship between the human being in the 20th century and certainly the 21st century with photography is very intimate, very deep, and very substantial in the definition of his own identity. And therefore, the relationship between people and photography at large is very emotional, it's very charged with a very intimate experience of photography. Therefore, photography has a very intimate private side that is related to determining everybody's own identity in the connection between your own self and your own photographs and the photographs of your loved ones and the photographs of history at large. On one hand, that is one thing. On the other hand, I believe that this makes of photography a powerful tool to memorialize and to deliver a message about what happened, about memory. There is parallelism between the Mayaline Monument in Washington Mall and our park, but there is also a big difference. Although both of them have lists of names of victims, the Mayaline Vietnam Memorial Monument honors the victims of the nation or honors the victims of the war defending the nation's interests of the time, whether that was right or not, but they were fighting for the American flag and for the American nation in representation of their country and their president of the time, whatever. In the case of Argentina, the monument is dedicated to the victims of the state. It is a monument paid for by the state for its own victims, for the victims that the state killed, the state terror killed. Therefore, there is a major difference one monument paid by the state for its victims, it's unusual, and it is the consequence of a lot of political action to make the state understand and recognize its responsibility in those victims, in those killings. And that's what we've had in Argentina. We've had justice perform its duties, and after 40 years, we processed the perpetrators. They are in prison, or they died in prison, or they are in prison at home, or whatever, they've been judged, they've been considered guilty. My own mother was present in a tribunal where she showed the perpetrators photographs of my brother in a detention camp. In fact, my work about my brother's image went and moved forward until I found an image of him in prison after torture session in the camp, and that was the end of my research about these photographs. And it was this photograph that my mother showed to the perpetrators in a court. So we have this kind of thing also. How have you gone from being an Argentine artist to being an artist whose work is about other parts of the world, the United States, Africa, Europe? I wonder if I can get you to reflect on that journey from the local to the global, becoming a conscience not only of your own family and of your own people, those that were killed by your own state, 
but those that are victims or those that are marching and protesting in other parts of the world? How does one travel from one's immediate humanity to a larger, more abstract spectrum? Well, on one hand, when you focus in a certain issue that might be local, small, but you focus it emotionally and you do hard, strong work telling that story, then that story stops being local and becomes everywhere. When I show the piece about the missing in Argentina, in Prague, or I show it in Bangladesh, or I show it in Paris or here, people relate that piece with their own classes, with their own experiences. You can also think of them in a different way, particularly now here I'm in New England. I'm seeing the consequence of the heroine epidemia and many people and many young people that die as a consequence of overdose. You're talking about the opioid epidemic. The opioid, yes. And I see, well, people here are dying for another reason. And that is also something that is happening here, but eventually in a class of a university in New England, you see some missing people and these people are not missing because of state terror back of an opium epidemic. And that is also a social thing. It's also a political thing that is affecting them. And eventually, an artist could talk about that as well. In my own experience, as I told you, when the Mexican students disappeared and I had a disappeared brother, that touched me very much. But at the same time, in Latin America, we all feel very close from each other. From a language point of view, a cultural point of view, we all speak the same language, we all have the same literature, we call each other brothers, culturally speaking. So the spectrum of my work has always been totally Latin American from the very beginning, because this happened in Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, you name it, elsewhere as well. Art has no frontiers. Social issues have no frontiers. Trump is affecting everyone, as the Che affected everyone at that time. And photography is in everybody's hands. Mm. And ideas travel fast today, as they did before. So I am concerned about what is happening everywhere, not only what is happening in my home or in my neighborhood. I'm concerned about what is happening here and what is happening in Europe and about the refugee crisis, about the resistance movements, about feminism, about what is happening everywhere. Mm. Not only because my daughter is a feminist now, but because also that is probably one of the most important changes we are living now. And that is affecting everybody's lives. Where are we standing with all this? Okay, this is not a national issue. This is totally global. And in part, it started here with the Me Too. And it's the biggest movement we have now in Latin America is that, and it started here. We're coming to a close, Marcelo, and I want to ask you one mm -hmm. last question. And that question is, in a way, a return to your earlier reflections on using photography to tell a story in front of a young generation that is not distracted but connected with photography, with images more than with anything else. Is there either hidden, tacit, or explicit and open mission in the art and act that you engage in, in creating these stories, the hope being to be able to transform that generation in a way that will improve things, that will expand their vision, that will stop violence concretely? Can a camera, can the intervention of historical archival material have an effect on either those in power or those without power that would ultimately change us for the better? 
Well, this is a question that affects the history of art. It's not something that affects my particular work. Has da Vinci changed the way the society was at that time? Not only through his inventions, but through his painting? Has Michelangelo changed the way in which we see life and enjoy and are emotioned by sculpture or by art? Art has a mission. Yeah, of course it does. It's a communication tool. It enables me to tell what I want to tell to a much wider audience with a somehow sophisticated, diversified language of tools, photography, text, music, whatever. I've just made an opera last year in Teatro Colón. I mean, working with art is very powerful. But it doesn't mean that it is meant to change anybody's way of thinking. It's just a way of communicating with the new generations and asking some questions. Art doesn't have the answers. Art cannot propose an alternative world. But art can bring to the table a lot of issues and it can do it in a very open-minded way in which a new generations can pick up whatever they want to move it forward. Art has a role in society, and it's a question to ask, to bring the issues and to do it openly. There's no censorship accepted in art. There's no limit to what you want to talk about. You are totally free. An artist is a privileged person because we have the total freedom to say and do whatever we want and use whatever means we have access to to do that. Therefore, we are in a good position to communicate ideas and to bring them to other people's thoughts and other people's way of acting. It can or not make change. Sometimes it does. And I trust that if my work has made anybody think about what he is supposed to do, about any issue, then it has fulfilled its mission. It's not as ambition as becoming whatever a political leader. It's more subtle, more small, but at the same time, it's extremely powerful. And I think that art has a mission, and I am part of a generation of artists that believe that art is a communication tool, and in a way a militant tool of social change that can help that happen. It has been extraordinary to have you in In Contrast. Marcelo Brodsky, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Photography freezes time. It extracts a single image from the unimpeded river that is reality and forces us to look at it with added attention. In that sense, it is artificial, an interruption. But that quality, the immobility of things, makes it arresting and indispensable, even miraculous. I like to think of the camera as a magisterial eye. It seizes nature. Although manipulated by a photographer, the lens has its own will. It sees what it wants to see, and it makes us go along with it. For better or worse, photographs are ubiquitous. There is no moment in the day when we aren't inundated by images. Likewise, we take photographs as much as we are taken by them. It's all a hall of mirrors, dizzying, infinite, to the point that it is increasingly difficult to imagine a period in history before photography. The landscape must have been purer, or else less referential, more boring. Photographs are testimonies. They bear witness. We may want to alter them, intervene in the message they deliver. It's a fruitless effort, though. 
Photographs impose their truth, regardless of what we think of them. They confront and denounce. There is no photograph of Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus on the cross, or Buddha in contemplation. But there are plenty of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, and Che Guevara. There are photographs of Nazi concentration camps and of the killing fields in Cambodia. The way to relate to a historical photograph is through reverence. Yet that reverence shouldn't paralyze us. Photographs are living documents. They speak to us because they have something to tell us. We should speak back to them, too, in all sorts of ways, disseminating them, reimagining them. The photographer is only in charge of half of the photograph's creation. The other half is left to the viewer. A photograph that isn't seen is a photograph that doesn't exist. Conversely, a photograph that is looked at is interpreted in unique ways by each and every one of its observers, who metaphorically are also photographers, freezing time in ways that are personal and therefore unique. On the next in contrast... It's about having your creativity be an escape for what you're dealing with. You're not in control of how your parent behaves, but you can draw and you're in charge of how those characters on the page behave. My sketchbooks were like a lifeline. I'd be excited about what was happening next. I mean, there are times where I was very depressed and certainly had thoughts of self-harm, but my sketchbooks buoyed me because I just fell in love with creating comics and writing these stories. Jared Krosaska next time on In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry, Forrest Gander, visual artist Sonia Clark, and author Min Jing Lee, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delina Hadko. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Posey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.